Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. With the United States Senate having overwhelmingly voted to adopt the Great American Outdoors Act this past week, the measure that would provide $6.5 billion to the National Park Service over five years to address maintenance needs is just a vote away in the House of Representatives. We reported on that development last week on The Traveler and also told you about two women who were sentenced to time in jail and fined $457 each for walking off boardwalk in the Midway Geyser Basin of Yellowstone National Park. We also ran an article on the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to allow a natural gas pipeline to pass beneath the Appalachian National Scenic Trail in Virginia. You can find those and other articles about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we focus on the U.S. Bureau of Land Management's move to offer more than 110,000 acres in Utah for oil and gas development. How might that proposal impact Arches, Capitol Reef, and Canyonlands National Parks? Erica Pollard from the National Parks Conservation Association joins us to explain some of the issues in play. After listening to our conversation, be sure to visit nationalparkstraveler.org for a story that looks at the issue in greater detail. Finally, we leave you with the rationale for instituting a reservation system for visiting some units of the national park system. One of the biggest threats to the health of the national parks is energy development. For instance, this past week we saw the U.S. Supreme Court rule that an energy company could run a natural gas pipeline beneath the Appalachian National Scenic Trail in Virginia. And later this year, the U.S. Bureau of Land Management will offer roughly 110,000 acres of land near Canyonlands National Park in Utah for oil and gas development. Both of these developments are tied to a law that is a century old this year, the Mineral Leasing Act of 1920. Under it, the federal government allows private industry to bid on sections of public lands to explore for oil and natural gas. Now, to better understand this process and the possible impacts to national parks, we've asked Erica Pollard, Associate Director of the National Parks Conservation Association's Southwest Region, to join us. Welcome back to The Traveler, Erica. Thanks, Kurt. Good to be here. I'm going to try not to jump around too much, but let's start last year, 2019. That's when NPCA issued Spoiled Parks, its report on national parks threatened by oil and gas development. That report highlighted a dozen parks that could be impacted, but let's focus on Canyonlands National Park. In that report, it said that Canyonlands and nearby Arches National Park have turned the neighboring city of Moab into a thriving destination hub for tourists. Combined, these parks welcome more than 2.4 million visitors in 2018 who spent $246 million in nearby communities, supported 3,725 local jobs, and produced $317 million in cumulative benefit to the local economy. Now, you read that, and you look at those numbers, and you look at the tourism impact on that part of Utah, You almost have to wonder, why is the federal government wanting to lease lands right next to those parks for oil and gas development? Well, I think part of the problem is that those lands are open to oil and gas development. 
through their oil and gas leasing process. And there um, is ongoing interest by the oil and gas industry to, to lease those lands and to potentially develop. And so it's kind of through the, the BLM's um, process that those lands are, are open and there's ongoing interest from industry. Now, of course, whether lands such as these are put up for bid for oil and gas leasing depends on which political party occupies the White House. We saw that George W. Bush um, back in 2008, the end of his second term was coming about. He put up, I think, roughly 360,000 acres in Utah for oil and gas leasing, some of those near Dinosaur National Monument and Arches and Canyonlands National Parks. And in the end, a large amount of that acreage was taken out of the lease offering. And then we had eight years of uh, Barack Obama as president, and we didn't have these kinds of uh, threats to the national parks. Rather, we saw um, President Obama designate national monuments in, uh, in Utah and elsewhere um, to protect the lands and the culture and the history that went with them. And now we've got President Trump in office, and he's got a decidedly different tact on how these lands should be managed. Is that safe to say? Yes. Um, you know, what we saw at the end of the Bush administration and the, the 77 parcels that were also offered at the end of that administration, you know, in a similar, similar landscape in the Moab area around Dinosaur really led to protest and, and controversy from the environmental community that, that there needed to be some sort of reform to how how and where oil and gas leasing and development was taking place. And so there was some reform that happened under the Obama administration. They took a step back, implemented master leasing plans, which was supposed to be a way of taking a, a closer look at some of these sensitive landscapes around protected areas and, and looking more closely at where and how oil and gas leasing should take place. That is something that the current administration immediately got rid of and basically entered into this energy dominance agenda where they were trying to make it as easy as possible and as quick as possible for industry to lease public land and develop it for oil and gas. And that's what we've been seeing under this administration. Um, you know, there has been a huge increase in the amount of lands that have been offered throughout Utah and really um, the Western U.S. under this administration. And they've made it really difficult for the public to engage in those processes and, and have an effective voice in being able to place some limits on, you know, where, where some of these leases are taking place, including right outside of our national parks. Right. I, I believe uh, NPCA earlier this year said that the Trump administration's um, unrelenting focus, as I believe how you put it, on leasing across a significant portion of lands managed by the Bureau of Land Management has set the stage to fundamentally alter America's Western landscape, leading to development and industrialization on the doorsteps of our national parks. Is it really that dire, that bleak of a forecast? It, it certainly has been. I mean, when we look particularly here in Utah, we've seen um, a tremendous amount of leasing that's happened around Hovenweep National Monument in far southeastern Utah. And then right now, what we're looking at in terms of this lease sale in the Moab area, um, as you mentioned, the, the, the entire sale is over 110,000 acres. That's not just in the Moab area, but, but the majority of those leases would be in Moab, literally within uh, half a mile of Canyonlands within several miles of arches, 
along the Green River, which obviously feeds into Canyonlands and is a important water source. So we're seeing just this, yeah, un, unrelenting kind of interest from industry and the willingness of the Bureau of Land Management to, to offer these leases. And yet at the same time, not all these leases that are offered are acted upon, right? Yes. Some leases are, are just held and are, um, do not end up being developed, which is also an issue, um, as that's essentially, you know, when they offer a lease, um, a company gets it, it's a 10-year lease. And so you're essentially blocking that landscape up, whether or not they develop it or not, for a single use um, on the land. So yes, that actually um, happens quite often, that companies will purchase the leases and then never develop them. And you know, is that the best use for these lands, especially when you're, you know, looking at a, a landscape like Moab, where um, there are so many other uses that happen out there. Um, and, you know, to lock it up for a single use really just goes against what, you know, the BLM is supposed to be doing with multiple use and is, you know, ignoring the fact that there are so many other, the outdoor recreation that's happening in these places, um, the resources that, you know, can be impacted and, and then really affect some of the adjacent communities as well. Any idea why an energy company would bid on a lease and then sit on it? I mean, according to the BLM, of the 24 million acres of public land currently leased by the oil and gas industry, almost six and a half million of those acres lie idle and undeveloped. I mean, what, what purpose is that? That's a good question, Kurt. <laughs> um, you know, I think it, it, it sometimes comes to, um, you know, the financial realities that some of these companies have. I think they are, they are able to sell them at some point to other leases. I guess I don't, I don't have a good answer for that one right now, Kurt. Okay, I'll have to reach out to some oil industry representatives and maybe they can explain it to me. Now, in, in your report last year, Spoiled Parks, it notes that recent advances in drilling technology have brought renewed industry attention to aging oil and gas fields in Utah. Is it those technological advances that have drawn interest to, to southeastern Utah in this uh, latest go-round of uh, lease auction? Well, that's a really good question. I think it's not entirely clear what the intentions are of um, the company that has nominated these parcels. I know people are trying to get an understanding if, you know, what, what their intentions are um, and if, you know, if they're aware that this is a landscape that, you know, there, there likely would be controversy, you know, if they were to purchase these these leases because um, there is so much, you know, so much other outdoor recreation and, and um, other values that people have for that landscape. So I, it's hard to say what the intention is for this company that's purchasing these leases, if, if they would even develop them or sell them to another company. Um, I don't think anybody really knows that right now. Yeah, I wonder if it's similar to, to what is done in, in the real estate industry in, in some sectors of the country um, where somebody will buy up um, the development rights to a property knowing that they don't have the financial wherewithal and then flip it, so to speak, to a, a larger development company that does. I wonder if that possibly could be the motivation with some of these uh, lease acquisitions by companies. Yeah, I think you're right. There is some speculation that's happening there. 
We're talking today with Erica Pollard, the Associate Director of the National Parks Conservation Association Southwest Region, about uh, energy development on public lands close to national parks. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. We're back now with Erica Pollard uh, of the National Parks Conservation Association talking about energy leasing on public lands near national parks. Erica, there was an interesting article in the New Yorker magazine uh, this past week in which well-known environmentalist Bill McKibben took a look at how that BLM lease set for September in uh, southern Utah came about. In short, the Mineral Leasing Act of 1920s, which I mentioned at the, the top of the show, lets people nominate lands for energy development. Um, McKibben wrote that the Mineral Leasing Act, as he put it, is a crime, a gift to the oil and gas industry. It awards the industry chunks of federal land through a process designed to move real estate out of public control as easily as possible. Is that hyperbole? Is that a little strong? I think that's pretty accurate, Kurt. You know, the fact that um, anybody could go out and um, submit an expression of interest to the Bureau of Land Management, they can even do anonymous expressions of interest where you don't know who exactly is, you know, submitting that request. Um, and then, you know, under the current administration, they will look at each one of those requests. And for the most part, they have been moving forward um, with the majority of these expressions of interest that are coming in from industry. So it's really frustrating to see that there can be, you know, one small company nominating a significant portion of the public lands right outside of our national parks and really gaining control of what happens on that land for a minimum of 10 years and then to be able to move forward and, and um, develop those and create all sorts of, you know, other impacts to these places. 
Yeah, yeah. Do you think that this process, as outlined by the Mineral Leasing Act, needs to be reviewed and, and possibly updated? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert on the Mineral Leasing Act, but just from my experience and being involved in, in lease sales here in Utah over the years, I think there does need to be a better process. I think that, you know, companies being able to not uh, nominate parcels anonymously and companies nominating parcels when they might not have any intention of developing them, um, that's something that needs to change. Yeah, I think there's a number of laws um, dating back a, a century or so that uh, possibly need to be changed. RS-2477, that allows, in some instances, cattle paths to be um, considered roads uh, across federal lands. Um, that's another one that I know people have talked about in, in recent years needs to be reviewed and, and changed. Now, we're, we're talking about um, oil and gas leasing almost on the doorstep of Canyonlands National Park, and I believe maybe Hovenweep and possibly up around Arches National Park. What impacts would that exploration and possible development bring to the region and, and to those parks? Yeah, so this, this lease sale um, includes the landscape around Arches, Canyonlands, um, the original boundaries of Bears Ears National Monument, and there is actually one parcel that's three miles within Capitol Reef National Park. So um, there are, aren't any leases around the Hovenweep area, but that, ha- that, that area has been significantly leased over the last couple of years, and there's not a whole lot else left to lease down there. But, you know, the impacts that we are certainly concerned about are just, you know, the, the increased infrastructure that comes along with energy development, you know, the, the, the pollution that's likely to happen, the, the impacts, you know, that can lead to just the, the expansive views that you'll get just being in that, in that area. The incredibly dark night skies, um, you know, more air pollution is obviously going to make that more hazy. And, um, you know, night skies are a huge thing on the Colorado Plateau. And, you know, Moab being a dark sky city, the parks being designated night sky places, they draw people for the night skies, you know, you'll, you'll see increased truck traffic. Some of the, some of the parcels that are being offered are just within half a mile of Canyonlands in the Island in the sky area. And so people traveling into the park along the highway there, there will, there will be more truck traffic there. There's, um, you know, the possibility for them to be building new roads to be able to access some of these places. There could certainly be impacts um, to the Green River and the quality of, you know, the water that's flowing into Canyonland. So a lot of, you know, just the overall visitor experience of, of driving into this, you know, Moab region, Arches, Canyonlands, you know, the incredible um, wilderness that's down in that place and having that turned into an industrialized landscape with smokestacks and air pollution and the, the, the impacts on the natural quiet that you have down there. So those are the things that um, we are very concerned about could happen if the BLM moves forward with this, this scale of an oil and gas lease sale. Yeah. Has your group um, association been in contact with the, the Utah governor's office? I know in the past when the BLM uh, proposed some leases close to Dinosaur National Monument, uh, the governor's office said, hey, can you, can you pull those away? Um, we don't want to kill our tourism industry up there to Dinosaur. Yeah. You know, um, the governor definitely does have the ability to help um, 
you know, either defer parcels or potentially even cancel a lease sale. And, um, you know, he has weighed in on past sales, usually only when there's a, a few parcels here and there. But we, we do hope that he will listen to all the voices because a lot of people really care about this place. Utahns included. We know that. Um, Utahns love our national parks and our red rock landscapes. But so do the millions of people that come here to recreate and spend their money and stay in these communities. Um, And they'll come back year after year. And so we think it's this is an instance where we really hope that Governor Herbert will will stand up and, um, you know, help tell the the Bureau of Land Management and the, the Department of Interior that this is not the time and this is not the place for leasing around our national parks. And now back in uh, 2008, when the George W. Bush administration proposed um, a big swath of Utah for oil and gas leasing, um, if my memory serves me correct, the BLM did not ask the Park Service for its thoughts on that proposal. Do you know if uh, that has happened this time around? Um, I, I I think they have been communicating with the Park Service and getting some input from them along the way, but I, it has it has been more of a challenge for the Park Service to be able to weigh in on um, activities that are happening outside of their boundaries, and, and particularly these oil and gas lease sales. Their voices have been minimized, as have you know a lot of just the, the American public. Um, in being able to 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 have an impact on where and when these leases are happening. Yeah. So so what can people who are listening to this show do if if they want to try and put an end to these leases or, or slow them down? For folks who are here in Utah, weigh in with our governor Herbert. Ask him, you know, to to get in touch with the BLM and the Department of Interior and have them cancel this lease sale because. You know, we're also concerned that these these sales and and not just here in Utah, but in other states here in the West are going through, you know, during this time of a a global pandemic, social unrest, when many of our communities and and families are just trying to take care of themselves and and are obviously focused on other things and to be pushing this type of, uh, you know, huge shift in public land use through when you know, the general public is, is more limited in how they can uh, weigh in is, is irresponsible. Um, so I would say weigh in with Governor Herbert um, and then weigh in with the Bureau of Land Management. When they released the environmental assessment last week, that started a 30-day public comment period, which will run through July 9th. And uh, NPCA will be putting out an action alert to our members and supporters to weigh in. They can, um, we're still working on that, but because it just came out last week and we're still taking some time to look through the EA and, you know, make sure we're understanding everything, but we'll have information on our website and, um, you know, trying to, trying to let the, the decision makers know that people care about our public lands and our national parks and, allowing industrial scale energy development to happen on their doorstep is absolutely irresponsible. All right. We've been talking today with Erica Pollard, the Associate Director of the National Parks Conservation Association Southwest Region, about energy exploration on lands close to national park units, uh, specifically in Utah this week. Erica, thanks so much for bringing us up to speed on that. And um, it'll be curious to see how this... um, plays through in the in the weeks and months to come yeah thanks so much for having me kurt and look forward to 
talking to you again. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. And now, an editorial. Have you seen what's going on at Zion National Park in Utah? where the shuttle system hasn't been running this summer, and so park staff have allowed only as many vehicles into Zion Canyon as the parking lots can hold? The following is from the park's Twitter feed. Friday, June 19th, at 6.06 a.m. Parking lot is full in the Zion Canyon Scenic Drive. The Scenic Drive is closed until parking becomes available. Thursday, June 18th, at 6.08 a.m., Parking lot is full on the Zion Canyon Scenic Drive. The Scenic Drive is closed until space becomes available. Parking and information is available at the Zion Canyon Visitor Center. Wednesday, June 17th at 6.20 a.m. Parking is available for visitors with reservations to stay the night at the lodge. All other parking is full. Tuesday, June 16th at 6.10 a.m. Parking is full on the Zion Canyon Scenic Drive. The Scenic Drive is closed until space becomes available. Parking and information is available at the Zion Canyon Visitor Center. Monday, June 15th at 6.14 a.m. Parking is full on the Zion Canyon Scenic Drive. The Scenic Drive is closed until space becomes available. Parking and information is available at the Zion Canyon Visitor Center. Sunday, June 14th at 6.10 a.m. Parking is full on the Zion Canyon Scenic Drive. The Scenic Drive is closed until space becomes available. Parking and information is available at the Zion Canyon Visitor Center. See the trend? Not only do lots of folks want to visit Zion Canyon, but some also are willing to arrive as early as 4 a.m. to ensure they get in these days. And the odds look pretty good that if you arrive after 6.30 a.m. or 7 a.m., you'll have to wait until some folks leave the canyon. Instituting a reservation system for parks where crowding is a problem, and not only in these coronavirus pandemic days, would alleviate this mad rush to get into a park and likely alleviate some bad temper and frustrations expressed by late arrivers. Rocky Mountain National Park officials implemented a reservation system for this summer to try to avoid crowding in the park, which attracted more than 4.6 million visitors last year. They say it will only last for this summer, but the results might convince them to rethink a longer-term use of that approach. Yosemite National Park officials also have implemented a reservation system to limit crowds this summer. And last year, Acadia National Park adopted a reservation system that will be instituted incrementally for some parts of the park during the peak summer months. More than likely, reservations wouldn't be required year-round in the parks, 
though Zion's crowd season seems to be getting longer and longer. Rather, it would be focused on the busy summer months, and it doesn't make sense to institute a reservation system across the entire national park system, as there are only a relative handful of parks that grapple with crowding problems. Places like Zion, Yellowstone at times, Yosemite, Grand Canyon, and Arches. What are the benefits of a reservation system? Well, park managers could better manage visitation levels to protect park resources. Visitors would know that they'd be able to get into the park of their choice when they arrive at the entrance gate with a reservation in hand. Park staffing levels could be geared against a known visitation level. What are the negatives? Well, there are a few as well. Some traveling spontaneity would fall by the wayside. Could the park service come up with a reservation system that wouldn't fall prey to bots and scalpers? How would reservations that are canceled due to weather or other factors, such as wildfires, that close parks be handled? Would locals who consider a national park their backyard rebel? Are these insurmountable problems? Probably not. Unappealing to some? No doubt. But reservations already are an ingrained part for travelers. You usually need a motel reservation, a dining reservation, and even a campground reservation in many national parks. Elsewhere in American life, some movie theaters allow you to reserve a ticket ahead of your arrival to guarantee a seat, and doctors and dentists expect you to schedule your visit. Airline reservations are good to have, too, along with rental car reservations. In fact, many parks already utilize a reservation system for camping, both front country and back country. Why? To protect park resources. And don't forget your lodging reservation. Instituting a park-wide reservation system for parks that routinely have to grapple with crowds only makes sense in these times of higher and higher visitation and fewer dollars for resource protection and staffing. Crowding and overcrowding in some parks in recent years has impacted natural resources, park staffing, and the visitor experience. Reservation systems could be modified to allow, for instance, a percentage of first-come, first-served traffic. As unappealing as some aspects of a reservation system might be, would improving the quality of a park visit and the health of a park's resources by requiring a reservation be such a bad thing? For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you find these podcasts informative and enjoyable, consider a donation to National Parks Traveler. We're a nonprofit news organization that relies on listener and reader support to bring you news and features about national parks and protected areas. You can find a donate button at nationalparkstraveler.org on the menu bar. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com.
National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.